0: Uh, and if you'd like to read with me, this will not be on the screen here. This is John chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 28 uh, and and on, and and I'll skip around and kind of help you let you know where I'm at. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Here we have Jesus on the cross. He is next to death. He He has been through the horrible... Uh, whippings, the intimidation, the, the brutal beatings, he's bloody, he's bruised, he's really not even recognizable. That's what the Bible says, you couldn't even recognize his face. Verse 29, now there was set a vessel full of vinegar and they filled it, filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. If that were the end of the story, all we would be doing would be following a good man who died for a cause. But thanks be to God, that was not the end of the story. He was crucified for a purpose, but that purpose wouldn't have been fulfilled if if all it was was that he was crucified because he predicted that he would come back to life again. And he said that he would come back to life again so that we would have that same power to come back to life ourselves. This resurrection power is not just for Jesus, but it's to show us that we have power to rise from the death of sin, if you will. To rise from the power, not only of the grave, but from the power of sin, to be overcomers. So he's our example there. Now I'd like to read just a little bit about what they, what they did with the body of Jesus Uh, In verse 41, it says, Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre, wherein was never man yet laid. Now, Now catch the irony here. Here you have the place where three crosses were erected, and the horrible agony of a crucifixion death, where a person literally hangs by their hands and the nails and the nail through the feet, and you you know that story and that picture. And in that same place, there's a garden. Here's this place of death and blood and torture, crucifixion, agony. But in that same place, there was a garden with a tomb that had never been used. In verse 42, There laid they Jesus before because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. This was... A special day where they had to, the Jews didn't embalm and they buried a person within that day, if at all possible. So they wanted to do a very quick job of burying him, not to not give him honor, but to try to obey the law. So now Jesus has been crucified, he's been put in the tomb, and I didn't read about all the, the myrrh and, and aloes and, and so on that they wrapped his body, I didn't read that part of the story, but they, they buried him in that fashion. <laughs> verse 20 or chapter 20 the first day of the week cometh mary magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher it didn't make sense you know she was going to pay homage to a person you know kind of to read the tombstone so to speak to kind of walk by and say boy i wish you were still here but when she got there she saw something that didn't make sense at all as though you going to visit your grandmother's grave And see, it's dug open and the coffin's open and there's no body there. That's how shocking it would be. That's exactly what these people saw in their cultural translation, so to speak. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. She might have been thinking, okay, they put him in this tomb that was nearby, right, by the crucifixion it was you know it was just a temporary thing now they put him somewhere permanent but i don't know where they put him peter therefore went and that other disciple which is probably john and uh, and came to the sepulcher and they both ran and they ran both together and the other disciple huh, did outrun peter and came first to the sepulcher you have to kind of put this in perspective that other disciple is referring to John, and John is the author of this book. And he's trying to say, I wanted so bad to see my Jesus that I ran faster than the Apostle Peter, who was the bold, aggressive guy. That's how much there was that love. Verse 5, And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about the head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. It's been said that every little Jewish child understood what that napkin, that folded napkin, meant. My understanding is that when, according to Jewish custom, when you were done with the meal, if you were done with the meal, you would just put the napkin on the table but if you left the table and were going to come back, if you weren't finished, if you were going to return, you would fold the napkin and place it by your plate or whatever it would be. And so the statement here by Jesus when he folded the napkin was very clear to any Jewish person. To us, it kind of passes us because we're not of that culture. But when you dig into that, we understand that Jesus was making a statement, even with a napkin that had been over his head, which was, I'm going to return. It wasn't, I'm done. It's not just, it's finished. He would said it's finished, but now he says, through his actions, it's finished, but I'm going to come back. Jesus was very specific in the way that he lived and very specific in the way that he died. It was by no coincidence that Jesus chose to die at the time that he did. There is a Jesus-Passover connection. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved so much, loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The point here is that he knew that he was going to die at a specific point, and it was going to be during this time of the Jewish feast, this Passover. The Passover was a feast, it was one of the three, it was the first of the three main feasts and festivals of the Jews. It was a pilgrim festival. What that means was people from around the world would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate in this feast, in this celebration. It was the time to come back home. Jesus specifically chose the time when he would die when he knew that way more than normal amount of people would be in Jerusalem. He chose a time when everybody had come home for the celebration, that pilgrim celebration. It was a time of celebration. He didn't choose a time of mourning. He chose a time of celebration even though the great anachronism, here we have the great time of mourning of the death of Christ. But he was trying to say, don't mourn for me. This is a celebration. Very carefully chosen time of his death. It was a time of celebration because they were remembering their deliverance from captivity and the return to the promised land. The symbolism here is so strong that you have to You have to look the other way to not see it. Jesus was trying to say, I'm going to die and resurrect in remembrance of what happened when you were brought out of the captivity of Egypt. You were slaves and I made you free people. Jesus was trying to say, you are slaves to sin, but I'm going to make you free people through the shed blood that I will give. He was trying to say, I am going to return and I will take you to the promised land. That's our heaven. Jesus was saying in these subtle points that the Jews could see if they thought for a little bit. And we also, if we look at this, his point that he was trying to make, this was not a coincidence. It was not something that passed people that take time to take a look at what's going on here. Every Jew knew the meaning of the Passover because of the Seder. The Passover meal was ceremoniously followed each year. It was a, if you've known Jews, you know that this is one of their great traditions. You may have a Christmas tradition, and we have some wonderful traditions, maybe an Easter meal today. But to the Jews, it was a holy responsibility to have a lamb meal. It was a holy responsibility to do this in a certain way. The youngest were involved in the readings during the Seder. The Seder wasn't just, hey, let's get some food and eat. It was, we're going to sit down, we're going to eat a specific type of meal, with certain elements, I'll not go into that this year or this time. I, I've done that many years before or in many times before. But the youngest were the youngest that could read would read the part of the story, and every year the youngest that came along was reading. And people they were trying to teach this to the youngest the point of what the Passover was. Tradition dictated that travelers and strangers were to be invited to the seder meal. If you have the seder. It was your obligation to try to find somebody that would be without, that would not be able to eat with somebody and invite them to your home and enjoy the Seder with you. It was a point when connections were going to be strong with all of these people that had visited Jerusalem. Now again, I'm not just talking about tradition here. I'm trying to talk about why Jesus would use this time for his death and crucifixion, for death and resurrection rather. Because he wanted everybody to be talking about what was going on what had been happening in days prior to this weeks prior to this he had come into Jerusalem with a triumphal entry people were gonna be talking about this there had been people healed in Jerusalem people were gonna be talking about this and now now with the death of Jesus at this Passover time all these things that were shaken up here was about to come forward now at the, at the Seder time they didn't understand that Jesus yet would be crucified they were still probably in their homes talking about this Jewish stuff, but maybe in some of the side banter, talking about this Jesus and what he had done to their relatives and what he had done in their community. This meal was an object lesson reminding the Passover lamb that was slain prior to Exodus. Can you all see this? Is this in the way here? Is that a yes or no? Were you Okay. Okay. The Jews were instructed to kill a lamb for the meal. And I I don't want to take a lot of time with this Passover thing just because it's Old Testament, but because there is such strong symbolism that, again, speaks to us today about what was going on. And I want so much to get ahead of myself, but I, I won't. The Jews were instructed to kill a lamb for the meal prior to their deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. This was a necessary death in order for freedom to come their had to be the death of a lamb. The fresh blood of the lamb was to be sprinkled on the doorframe of the homes as a protection against the death angel. They would kill the lamb, they would take the fresh blood, and they were to sprinkle it on the doorframe of their home. Now, they, they didn't choose to sprinkle the blood on the inside of the doorframe. They sprinkled it on the outside of the door frame so that the death angel, as he came by, would see that blood and would pass over that house. Pass over. He would pass by that. Homes that didn't have the blood on them. His symbolism is, is incredible here. And Jesus chose that to speak to us and to the Jews again and again and again about the death and the burial and the resurrection of the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. They didn't sprinkle the blood, like I said, on the inside of the house because the Lord wanted those people not only to show the death angel that they were obedient Jews, but to show the world that I'm making a statement who I am, what I've done, I have been obedient to the instructions that were given to me. It wasn't enough to kill the lamb and it wasn't enough to sprinkle the blood where they chose to sprinkle it. There is an element of the Bible where Jesus says, we need to follow things according to the way that he's taught us. Today in religion, you know, the general religious concept is that you know, make your own religion, create your own religion, kind of put together, morph it however you want to, just kind of do your own thing. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus, with all of his love, with all of his grace and his, and his uh, compassion, still has some things that says, okay, this is the way to do it. And this is the way that I want you to do it. It was to be sprinkled in a specific way for a specific point. And those people that did that, they were showing their obedience. The death was necessary. Obedience was necessary to get away from that that death angel, which is, of course, a type of a spiritual death. I'm not going to that right now. The lamb was to be completely eaten that night. Those of you that hate leftovers, there were not going to be any leftovers that night. Matter of fact, they were to choose a lamb that was the right size for their family. And if they had such a small family that even the small lamb was too big, they were to bring other people in so that the lamb was completely consumed. Now again, this is a point of reference. This is a point of symbolism that we we, we, we have to be careful not to overlook. What the Lord was trying to say here is that what I want you to do is to completely take the truth and the gospel that I have. This isn't a pick and choose, you know, I I like the leg of the lamb, but, you know, I don't like so much the the meat on the back of the lamb. I'm going to leave that. He was trying to say, take the whole gospel, receive the whole thing. And when you do that, you will get the balance and the fulfillment of the whole thing. Each of these things, the necessary death, the obedience, and the complete consumption were critical for them to receive their escape from Exodus, or escape from Egypt with the Exodus. Now here's just some scriptures that refer back to what I was just talking about. Passover instructions, the death, and the blood shall be upon you for a token upon the houses where ye are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. This was one of the plagues that were given, and all of the Egyptians that didn't, Understand what the Lord was trying to do through the Passover and so on. Their firstborn was killed. There is indeed a curse that is put upon sin, as one of those plagues was. And God will carry that out. But He has the blessing of escape to those who are obedient. Obedience, and they shall take of the blood and strike it upon the side posts and upon the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat, and the complete consumption. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. The lamb was the Passover. The Passover lamb. Jesus chose the Passover on purpose. So what's so special about the Passover? Why was Jesus crucified during this Passover? Jesus was the Lamb of God. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, shall slain, uh, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This verse here refers to, regardless of people's understanding, regardless of people's philosophies, there will come a time when people all bow their knees. Every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every. And I have thought, okay, this is going to be like maybe a victor, a a conquering king who demands a person kneel down in submission and so on. But I have a feeling what's going to happen here is when people understand the end of times, the day of judgment, they will understand that Jesus really is Lord. And at that point, it's going to be too late for them to accept God as their Savior, so to speak for them to be baptized and receive the Holy Ghost and so on. It's too late at that point. But at least they will mentally assent, you are the king. You are the risen Savior. Notice it says, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Not just those that are followers of him. A few verses about just what happened in the Passover, the blood, and so on. We don't like to talk about the blood. It's gross. It's gory. But it is is a part and parcel. It It is the core essence of what Jesus Christ said was what he was doing. It's our blessing. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Matthew said for this is my blood of the new testament which is shed for many of the rem- for the remission of sins. So now if his blood is shed we have to ask ourselves we don't take the blood of Jesus Christ and put it on the doorpost today. How do we take the blood of Jesus Christ and apply it to our lives? How do we take that blood and make it real? and make it applicable to us. There's got to be a way to do that. And I'll not read Romans 3 there. Now we're talking about Jesus, and I'm leaving that last question open. I'm, I'm, just, I'm leaving it open on purpose. We talked about the blood. No, we're, we're comparing Jesus to the Passover lamb, the body of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, and so on. Here's Jesus, his eaten body. We don't like that phrase. And, and people misunderstood that because they thought that, that Christians were cannibals and they started to persecute them. That's not, exa- that's not at all what Jesus was saying. He ate that little bit of cracker, so to speak, that unleavened bread. and was saying, take, eat, this is my blood, this is my body. So it was symbolic. First uh, Corinthians, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, This do in remembrance of me. And there are many uh, uh, religions today that take communion on a regular basis to commemorate what Jesus did. Jeremiah, the words were found and I did eat them. What's that got to do with Jesus? Jesus said that he was the word. Jeremiah here ate the word, so to speak. A little bit of symbolism of taking that into us. Thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. And everyone will worship Jesus. And I refer to this, and all, shall, uh, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life. I referred to that already. Now this is where it gets a little interesting. Have you ever had a day on the calendar when you wish you can put, it, put time in reverse and go back and erase that day? Every one of us had those days. We've all wished that we could have gone back in time and erased a statement or erased a mistake or, or erased a hurt. There are many people in the world today that would do anything that they could to put time in reverse and erase what happened on the day that Jesus died and more importantly, the day that he resurrected. Now we know we can't reverse time. But people in other ways do everything that they can to deny what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection and, they, and, this is, and the reason I'm bringing this up here is not just to talk about those people but to talk to us as Christians about who we have to reach out to and the challenge that we have to share this gospel with people that don't perceive it as good news but the fact of the matter is it is good news and what other religions do in some cases of cramming it down people's throats or killing people if they don't believe it that's not what we as Christians do Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he simply asks us, Would you like to receive the truth that I have? He doesn't barge in. He doesn't kill you if you don't answer the door. Jesus' picture is one of a gentleman offering truth to us. The Muslims have a different perspective. They would like to take the whole Jesus thing and get rid of it. And they, in effect, do by what is written in their Koran. The Koran states, and I, I, was really, I was deeply moved the other day. I was on, on the Internet, and I went to YouTube, and I looked up Resurrection or Good Friday, something like that. And I saw I a, a, uh, I don't know if he was an imam or a cleric, may have just been a Muslim scholar, but he was talking about the, the, the view of Muslims relative to Jesus Christ. And he said, Jesus Christ, because it was written in the Koran that Jesus Christ never died, that he was taken from being alive up to heaven by the Father, they say, that he never died. And therefore, if he never died, he never died for our sins. And if he didn't die for our sins, he's not our Savior. And therefore, what he says is, that part's wrong. That part of the Bible is wrong. So Muslims today their concept according to the Quran is that Jesus didn't die for the sins of the world. Now from Wikipedia according to Islamic texts text, text, <laughs> Jesus was either killed, neither killed nor crucified, but rather he was raised alive up to heaven. I refer to this. So Muslims through a few words in the Quran say he didn't die. He's not your savior. They say he was a prophet, but he had nothing to do with deity. The interesting thing, Muslims do not believe in a trinity at all. They believe in the oneness of God, their Allah. And so they say Jesus couldn't have been God because there's only one God. The interesting thing is that we as oneness apostolics believe there is only one God, and the whole body of Uh, if you could say this, the spirit, rather, the whole spirit of, of God was within Jesus, reconciling the world unto himself, as the Bible says. And so when you saw Jesus, that was a human body with all of God inside him. And when Jesus hung on the cross and died, the human flesh died, but that spirit within him did not die. That's what allowed that body to come back to life again. And so the, the Muslims' concept of it couldn't have been Jesus because he was like a separate part of the Trinity is not at all what we, what we believe. Christ's denial by others. Hinduism is divided on the issue of Jesus. Some say that he was a guru or a yogi. Some Hindus go so far as to equate Jesus with an avatar, which is an incarnation of God on earth. I'm with that, along with Rama, Buddha, and Krishna. No, there's only one Jesus. <laughs> there's only one incarnation. There are not multiple incarnations. And so the interesting thing here is, if you read much about Hinduism, and I'm by no means an expert, but they give place to Jesus and even make him an incarnation of, of God on the earth, almost to the place where we as Christians could say, hey, you know, we can get along here. But where they're coming from, where Hindus come from is, okay, you you turn to your Jesus, but I'm going to turn to my Rama or Buddha because they're all equal. And that's not the case because Jesus didn't have peers. Jesus didn't have brothers or sisters, so to speak. He was the, the, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so others try to get rid of this whole Easter story in a variety of ways. Now, this is where it gets to me some of the most, first of all, it comes very much at home. This is one of the last slides here. Where it comes very much to home is the people that we live with that make up the major, make up much of America. I read in an article, uh, matter of fact, let me grab it back here in today's paper, that about 34% of Americans today are, or uh, in Indiana anyway. But I, they were referring how our numbers are not too far from the um, America as a whole. That uh, uh, back here, 34%. This is a religious affiliation in Indiana, and they refer to America too. Uh, evangel- evangelical Protestants, 34%. And then mainline Protestants, 22%. And then Roman Catholics, 18%. And then 16%, unaffiliated. That's 16% to me. That's a huge percentage because actually the Hindus and Buddhists only take up about, or make up, I rather, about 1% each. So here we have 16% of Americans believing that they're they're unaffiliated. Now, let me just read it. These folks aren't a part of any group. About one-fourth are atheists and agnostics. So that's about 4%. That's 12% then. The rest, 12%, are split almost evenly between between those who think religion is important and those who don't. So you have about 8% of the population, no, 6% of the population saying religion is important, but I'm not going to go to church. Religion is important, but you don't have to go to church to worship. And there's a, the headline article here is a couple here. It says, churches are trying to reach folks like Patrick Brady and his wife, Melissa. They belong to no church, but consider themselves to be spiritual. People today are trying to re- maintain a relationship with Christ, but on their own terms. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus was very specific. In the Old Testament, he said, "Through the the Lord said, put the blood on the lintels a specific way. And it's really not up to us to say, you know, and I already referred to it, "I, I like this page here, but I have trouble with this one. And I like this page, but I have trouble with this one. But the Lord, the implication was, Eat the whole lamb. Take the whole thing. Receive it all because there's strength in that. Now, should we we not look carefully at what the Bible has to say? Should we not analyze what was going on and and try to understand it? Absolutely. We need to do that because when we do that, we can understand what's happening. Some people would have us to think that as Christians, we should just kind of blind our eyes to other things that are going on and just accept Christ without thinking about it. Wrong, 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 wrong. We need to understand what's happening. We need to have what has what is driving much of what I said in the last three slides here, we need to have a ready answer to explain our Jesus, this Jesus Christ, to people who are of other faiths to understand the power and the love, the mercy and the grace and the true resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amber, you were in a Horrible accident not too long ago. The Lord showed you his grace, and he's given you really a new lease on life. That could have been the last day for Amber. It really could have. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you're able to be here. Amen. You probably can't understand Amber very well. Her teeth are wired shut from the surgery, and you can't wait to eat. Sorry, talking about a meal. Here I, she comes to church, and what do I do? I talk about a meal. I'm sorry. (laughs) We're glad to have you here. But that is a part of the grace and the power of Jesus Christ to give us help and strength. It seems to me the Lord helped you once before when he, and, and forgive me for putting words in your mouth, so to speak, but when he delivered you from a lot of stuff. Right. Yeah. He's, that is the truth. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He has grace and mercy. That's our precious God. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, I thank you, Lord, because you are so very powerful. I thank you, Jesus, because you, Lord, really did die and come back to life for our sins. I thank you, Jesus, because you are so kind. And you even give us a chance, Lord, to choose you or to not choose you. Thank you, God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the many miracles that you've done, how you've touched our lives. I thank you, Lord, for the reality of your spirit. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for putting a smile on our faces, God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, because you have proven your miraculous power over and over and over again. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll help us, God, to truly be witnesses of your resurrection. Help us, Lord Jesus, in our lives, wherever we are, to come to you, to live for you, to do your work. Bless us, I pray. Lord, I thank you for our guests, our visitors today. I pray that you'll bless them, Lord Jesus, with the power of your love. We thank you, Jesus. Jesus name Jesus name amen